It's that by your word, you will indeed sanctify us, that you will open our eyes to see what is true and help us to know the difference between what is true and what is false, Lord, that we might cling to that which is true and that which is good. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Romans, Romans chapter 5, where we're going to look at that chapter together as we continue in our, our look in this fine book. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? Well, there's a lot here, obviously, as we go through there. There's a lot of ways that we could unpack this passage, but uh, uh, the one thing I wanted to really focus on as we look at this passage is what it promises to us in terms of, of hope. 
when he talks about you have been justified by faith, and therefore you have peace with God, and that peace with God propels us into a place where we have hope. And hope is, hope is of vital importance. I mean, if you think about it, hope is the thing that gets you up every day. Something in that day that you are hoping to accomplish, hoping to see, hoping to do. So if you think about it, when you're young, you know, you, you wake up hopeful that you're going to have a day full of discovery, a day full of adventure. You know, when you get a little bit older, you may wake up because you're hopeful that you will uh, achieve some accomplishment that will propel you down a path towards some measure of greatness, whether that's grades or the reward of a good college or it's the reward of a good job, a job that will, that will satisfy you, that will fulfill you, that will pay you lots of money. So there's this hope that's always propelling us to do stuff. But when you come to a place where that hope no longer exists, well, that's a bad place to be. You don't have a reason to get up in the morning. You find yourself despairing. You find yourself depressed. You just don't have anything in life to look forward to. And so we realize how absolutely vital hope is. And I, I wanted to focus on hope largely because of where we are in in history right now. I mean, we seem to be in a place where hope is falling by the wayside for many people. I mean, if you're, if you're a student of the news, then you're very well aware of all the trouble going on in the world, from the pandemic to the wars to the potential, depending on which side of the aisle you listen to, conspiracies or loss of, of freedoms or whatever it might be. There's all these reasons to lose hope in what we see happening in the world because of the things that are happening in the world. You know, whether it's because there's a great risk of future illness and death, whether there's a great risk of loss of freedoms, whether there's a great risk of a great recession. So all of these things that affect the world can take away a person's hope that is built on things that are of this world. I mean, even our young people, we see the mental health needs are skyrocketing. Why? Because their hope is going away. Hope in a bright future is giving way to a, a dim future. And so when Paul is writing to us about the gospel, one of the principal products or results of understanding the gospel is that we have a hope before us that serves a foundation for propelling us forward in the life that we live. Hope. Hope. So that's what I want you to get out of this. I want you to walk away from today hopeful, hopeful about the future. So as we go through this chapter 5, let's look at the ways that he is doing that. How is he giving us hope? And he does it by, of course, carrying through an argument, as Paul is always doing, but he begins, he begins the chapter talking about the justification that he's just described in the previous chapter. You've been justified. In other words, in the eyes of the law, you have been declared not guilty. And, the, and what that has done for you, it's given you peace with God. And peace becomes the foundation upon which you have hope. Now, what kind of hope? As he goes on to talk about, it's a hope. Look at what he says in verse 2. As a result of that peace with God, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, you know, when you read Romans, it's so easy to read by every, pa- every verse because every verse is so packed with stuff that we, we go by it, it sounds great, it sounds spiritual and all that stuff, but we have to pause, we have to unpack this stuff. 
That is such a, a full statement. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So he's talking about a hope that's about something that's going to happen in the future. In the future, we are going to see the glory of God. Now, he doesn't exactly spell out what that means, but we can infer the glory of God, of course, is the, the glory of God's finished work. That's the, the glory that we are going to be invited to see. You know, all of the earth, we realize, was subject to the corruption that happened as a result of man's fall in the garden. So that glory of God is going to be a restored creation. It's going to be a redeemed sinner. It's going to be a place where the tears of man are all wiped away. It's going to be a place of great joy where there's no longer a veil separating you from the face of God. You know, that's about as much as we understand. Everything else is just beyond our imagination of how amazing a restored creation with sinners that have all the stain of sin gone from their life, gone from society where there's nothing but flourishing in the presence of God. So this is the glory of God, and He's holding out that, that out and saying, look, all a result of the fact that you have peace with God, you are going to get to see the glory of God. You're going to get to rejoice in the glory of God. Now, as we think about hope being the thing that propels us into the future, He's saying, look, here is your hope. Here is what's going to happen and it is absolutely established, it's based on the peace of God that you have had as a result of your justification. And it cannot be affected by the circumstances that are so up and down in the world. It cannot be removed. Now, hope, again, in, when you read the word hope in the Bible, it's, it's, we have to take into consideration what exactly is hope. Because hope, in the way that we often use the word, isn't the same definition of the hope that we find in the Bible. When you read hope in the Bible, he's talking about an absolute confident expectation of something that will be a result. When we use the word hope today, we often are just using it in terms of, oh, I wish. I hope I win the lottery. You know, that's a, it's a hopeful wish. It's not, there's no confidence upon which to base that. When your chances are, what, one in, you know, one million or something like that, that's not a lot of reason to have hope that you're going to win the lottery. You might wish to win the lottery. But when Paul says that we, have, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he's saying we can have absolute confidence that we will indeed see the glory of God. And all of that is a result of the fact that we have peace with God as a result of our justification. Now, again, justification, that's a, that's a forensic term. That's a, that's a, a legal status before, before God. And it's been, he's established that in the previous chapter by explaining that the wrath of God has been satisfied. It's been propitiated. It's been taken away. You know, you were guilty before God, but Christ has taken away your guilt, and the wrath of God that you were due has been satisfied. And the result of that is a peace with God. But it's a, it's a significant peace. You know, when we think about peace in relationships, we can think of them in varying degrees. So if you think about somebody perhaps that you have offended, maybe you offended them long ago and you, not, you weren't quite aware of it, but it has put a rift between you. And there is this underlying tension that exists constantly in the fact that this relationship has been, has been marred. And there may come a time, maybe it's a year later, maybe it's a week later, maybe it's 10 years later, in which this person, or you, I should say if you're the offender, has gone forward and say, I am really sorry. 
about that. And the person forgives you, and you realize that tension is suddenly gone. And there is, there is peace now because the tension isn't there, but it's not exactly that you would instantly become these best buddies. It may be that the tension is gone, but there's no real interest in having any kind of closeness. I mean, I think of Jacob and Esau in the story in the Old Testament. It's a great example. You know, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Jacob was the younger brother. Esau was the older brother by a few minutes. They were twins. But Esau, as a result of being the older brother, was supposed to get the birthright. He was supposed to get the blessing. And those were big deals back then. And Jacob managed to deceive his way into stealing them both from Esau and made Esau furious, so furious that he vowed to kill his brother as soon as his dad you know, passed away and wouldn't be offended by it. Well, Jacob learns of it, and he flees the country. He's that frightened. So there is a big rift between these two brothers. It's so bad that Jacob stays away for a long time, many, many, many years. And when he finally comes back, because he's managed to offend the people he's living with there, he comes back and he knows he's about to be entering the, the area where Esau lives. And he's terrified. But his, his, uh, he, he gains a sense of peace because Esau comes and greets him, kisses him, and forgives him. So the tension that existed for decades and decades is now gone, and there's peace between these brothers. But it's not exactly a peace that brings them to live next door to one another, because as you'll recall, Jacob says, that's great, I'm so glad we have peace with each other, but I'm going to go live over there, and you live over there. So it is a peace, but it's not a peace that does more than remove the tension. When Paul is saying that you have peace with God, he's saying so much more than the tension is just gone. Because if you think about the justification being the satisfaction of God's wrath, His wrath is removed because the penalty that was due for breaking the law has been now paid. You can imagine that you're not you're no longer judged guilty by the court, but it's not exactly that that makes you someone that the judge just wants to hang out with, especially if he knows your character, right? So what Paul is saying here, what's fascinating is, is you have peace with God, and this is the kind of peace he has. Look at verse 2 again. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have obtained access. That's a it's an interesting word in the Greek there. It's, it's often used in reference to someone who's been granted an audience to someone who is a great person. So, if you're, for example, if you were coming to a, a kingdom and you wanted to go in and see the king, you would have to be granted an audience. You have to be, someone is going to have to give you an introduction so that you can go into that unique presence. So I was thinking about this, of course, with all the stuff going on in England right now and the queen passing away and you have a new king and, you know, you can imagine, most of you probably have peace with England right now, imagine. So you could go over to the country of England and know some degree of peace, but that's a far cry from being invited into the palace where the king is. And what Paul is saying, it's like, that's the kind of peace that you have. You have the kind of peace in which you have obtained access through faith into this grace in which we now stand, which brings us into the presence of God. Why? Because you have been made a son of God. 
And Paul's going to spell that out a little bit more in the book of Romans 2. But you are now to be an inheritor of the kingdom. You have been given the status of someone who is part of God's family. So that throne room, that chamber, you have obtained access to. And that's the foundation for having a hope in the future glory of God. You are going to see it from that perspective. So this is, this is your propulsion of living in hope. One, you have a peace with God that ushers you into the very presence of God. He says, into that grace in which we stand. And of course, if we want to spell that out too, this grace in which we stand is all the many blessings and benefits that go along with the fact that we have peace with God. And again, the gospel itself unpacks those many things. And that's what, that's what Paul is doing in this letter. That's why we can't get to everything all at once. Just like last week, we were talking about how it is by faith you've been saved and not by works, and so we were talking about the fact that, so therefore, it doesn't matter what you do in terms of your justification, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter what you do and how you live, because your faith is a reflection, or or what you do is a reflection of your faith. And of course, we're going to get to that later in Romans. Again, I don't want people to walk away thinking, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. No, it does, but you have to be patient because we haven't gotten there yet in Romans. So just hold on. There are so many benefits in, that go along with this grace in which we stand because we have peace with God that more than anything is giving us hope for a future that is beyond our imagination in terms of its greatness. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it gives us a new perspective. It gives us a new perspective as he goes on In verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint us. Hope does not, is not diminished as a result. And why does he say that? He says that because if, if you have now this hope of this place that's going to exist where all sin has been wiped away, the stain of evil is gone, the reason for tears is no longer that you're living in a place where you're enjoying the, the beauty and the glory of God and the flourishing of society that results of that, that doesn't jive with where we are now. Because where we are now, we are not experiencing those things. We are still living in a place where circumstances are constantly being uh, turned upside down. We are still living in a place where we, instead of knowing the joy of this glory, we are experiencing the suffering in this world. Because this, wor- this world is still groaning under the weight of its corruption. So he says, you are right now suffering, but I want you to know something. Even that suffering has purpose that's going to lead to hope. That's what he's saying. Even that suffering has purpose. What's its purpose? What's it doing? Suffering produces endurance by the way, you could, endurance is a description for faith, faith that endures through all the struggles that you face. It means you're not going to lose sight of that hope of God's glory. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So you have this purpose of your suffering. It's producing endurance, which is producing character, which is leading to hope. Now, again, if we describe this final end, this glory of God as the place where all evil has been wiped away, has been washed away, 
that the stain of your soul has been made clean, I want you to think about where you are now and where you have to get to. I mean, you don't even know the full darkness of your heart, but there's a big gap between where you are now and where you have to get to. And what has to happen in that interim? It has to be a process that you go through to have your grip little by little removed from the various various idols that we hold on to in this world that we may not even be aware of it that lead us to to put our hope in different things, to put our faith in different things, which when we do that, by the way, is the cause of sin. So he's he's allowing suffering to go on in your life to produce character, to, to bring you along to the point of reflecting more and more of what that ultimate glory is going to look like. And by the way, the Bible has a name for that. It's called sanctification. So the suffering that you experience in this life is an agent that God has purposefully allowed to happen to bring you to this, through this process of sanctification. Now, it is interesting that the word he uses for suffering there isn't necessarily referring to just all the, the ordinary trials that we face in life. He's really talking about those trials that come about because of your faith. It's the word tribulation that happens. So as a result of the fact that you are living a life of faith, The world is going to bring extra grief down on your head. And that could be for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, we know that the the enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for those he might devour. He is set against you at at the onset of the fact of a person of having faith. But also people who aren't in this place, who have lived a life in such a way that they've tried and tried to callous the sensitivity of their hearts to their own conscience, so they don't feel the weight of the guilt of the life that they've chosen to live and have managed to be successful. When they come into the, when they come into the presence of one who has faith and is living by faith, it exposes that all over again. It's as though you're scratching loose the calluses that they've so carefully built up, and it's an unpleasant experience. So there is going to be suffering. There's going to be tribulation as a result of the fact that you are trying to live a life of faith, that you are shining a light in people's dark places that they don't want a light shined on, and that suffering that results, whatever shape it may take, it's purposeful for God producing in you character as He begins to bring you toward that direction of His future glory. So we have peace with God that is such, a, is such a peace that's defined by being invited into the very presence of God Himself, into the throne room, into His chambers. It also means that it gives you perspective on the future struggles that you take, knowing that they are not without purpose. They're never without purpose. And finally, you can look at the, you could say even the climax of all this of how do we know all this? And he spells that out in verse 5. Uh, Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit has been given to you, and He has a job to do. And His job is to pour into you the love of Christ. That is, that is like the fuel, the oil in the lamp that keeps it burning. 
How does He do that? How does He pour the love of Christ into you? Well, this is what He goes on to spell out in the rest of the chapter. One, He opens your eyes to see what exactly has happened to bring you to this place of experiencing all of this grace. He says, look, I want you to understand something about the love of God. Remember, it's being poured into our heart. Well, here's, here's the nature of the love of God in verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, there's this, there's this picture of love. You want to know what love is. You want to know what the ultimate love is. Well, you have someone who died for you out of necessity, because otherwise you would have died. And He didn't do it because you were such a good person. He, Paul is explaining, look, there, that's possible that someone might do that for someone who was worthy of it. But he's very explicitly saying, while you were still sinners, while you were weak in your sin, while you were still black in your sinfulness, that is when Christ died for you. You see, he, it, another way of putting it is he, he traveled into hell in order to bring you up. That's the picture. He's saying, I want you to understand that. This is how Christ is pouring His, His love into you is by opening your eyes to see the wonder of that. You know, so much of this stuff as believers in the church, we hear it, we understand it logically, we've heard it so many times, we conceptually get it, but does it really penetrate so much? Do you really understand how much you are loved? Because there is no greater way God could have shown you how much His love is than this. Think, why would God do it this way? Well, there's one reason. So you would understand something about the depth of God's love for you. You would know how far He would go in order to, to rescue you and to save you. Do you see? So the Holy Spirit is pouring God's love into your hearts by opening your eyes to see the wonder of it. And as if you don't get that, if you don't figure out how on earth does that possibly do me any good, how is that possible? You know, I've had conversation with people about, does it make sense? Does it make sense for God to punish an innocent person for the sake of a guilty person. I mean, if you, were, if you were imagining someone in this world who is, who is guilty before the law and some random innocent person comes into that courtroom and says, well, you know what? I'll just volunteer to go serve a sentence. I mean, would any judge be just if he said, okay? No, he wouldn't. There has to be some unique relationship between the one who is offering that and the person who's receiving it. So as if you're not quite understanding how much did God do for you, it's, He did that for you because He has made you His family. He has made you His family. And that goes on to explain how is it possible that one man can die for the sake of others and then inherit eternal life. And he goes on to use this illustration about Adam. And it's a fascinating comparison. He's talking about how in Adam all have, have received death. And that, that itself can be a difficult concept for us to understand. This idea that because Adam's sin way back in the Garden of Eden, by taking that forbidden fruit, has resulted in death for, for you and me. That is a, that's the association he's drawing. 
He says, how can we be sure that that's, that's really the case? And there's a reason why he's trying to establish this, because he's, he's using it as a parallel for what Christ has done in terms of obedience. But in terms of, of Adam and his death, he says, the reason that you can know that, that your death was inherited from one man's sin is because Adam lived in, or because there was a time in which there was no law on the books that you could judge people of guilty, and yet they still died. That's what he's going on to explain. So let's, let's continue to look at it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So he's not saying that there wasn't ever people that weren't sinful, but he is saying there were people who were sinful, but it wasn't counted against them because there was no law specifically given as if written on the books yet. And if you think about God's books, as it were, there was only, until Moses came, who received the Ten Commandments of the Lord, received the various law for the people of God, there wasn't any law on the books except for one. And it was the one explicit law given to Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one on the books. Well, Adam broke it. And what happened as a result? Adam was cast out of the garden, and the way back to that tree was blocked. So it was actually impossible for anyone to break the one law that was on the books. And yet, all those people between Adam and Moses still died. Why did they still die if there was no law on the books by which they could be judged? Because they were related in a very specific way to Adam. And that's the the illustration that he's using to explain, well, how how does Christ's righteousness work? Well, it works in the same way that Adam's disobedience led to death for all men because they have this specific relationship. The reason that Christ's obedience works for all men. And by the way, when he says all men, he's talking about not every single individual. He's talking about all kinds of people, all people groups, all men on the earth. That was Paul's big, uh, that was his one ministry. His ministry was to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to all nations. And that was the, the, the huge thing that was happening in the New Testament, that this was no longer just for the Jewish people. It was being exploded out to all peoples. And I'm, I'm, that's something not really something I meant to get into in this, but I think it's important to say because it can be confusing when he's talking about that. He's saying, how can it go to all people? Because there is a relationship that God establishes with all people groups with Christ that's similar to the relationship that Adam has with all people as their forefather. He becomes your older brother. And his act of obedience, his willingness to submit all the way to going to the cross and fulfill the law of God in its, in its completion. That act of obedience, which leads to righteousness, now gets passed on to those who are related to Him in the same way that people are related to Adam, by the avenue of their faith. By the avenue of their faith. So, by the way, if you want to think about this, there's, there's a couple things mentioned here. He talks about... He talks about um, being reconciled to God or having peace because of your justification because God has, because Jesus has paid the price with His 
by giving His life. He has died. But there's also this aspect that you'll be saved by His life. If you want to think of it, both of those nature, He has saved you from from death by His death, which has granted you peace with God, but that would limit you to being like, you know, the, the, the citizen, the non-citizen of England going into England. But the fact that He's, he's also given you His life, His act of righteousness is the thing that brings you into the throne room of the King. That's what brings you into the throne room of the King. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He brings you into all truth, which is a parallel way of saying He pours the love of God into your hearts by opening your eyes to see the wonders of the gospel and the power of the love of God for you. So that's what we see in this, so that you will live a life filled with hope for a great future, putting, putting all of the struggles in this life back in perspective, knowing that every day the Holy Spirit's job is to continue pouring the love of God into your heart. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't get any better than that, let me put it that way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a wondrous gospel that you have given to us through this work of Jesus Christ that puts on display the greatness of your love, which is the promise of our future glory, which puts in perspective all the difficulties that we face every day as we seek to live a life of faith. Father, would you help this hope remain clear in our eyes as we wake up each day. In Jesus' name, amen.